morning, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 of 1 John 5, and the title of the message today is Saving Faith and Deadly Sin. Saving Faith and Deadly Sin. As I have looked at this passage over this week and and a week prior to this, um, one realization that came to me was that this is one of the great balancing texts of Scripture. It's a passage that is important because John shows us the great importance, the great purpose for which he writes, and that is so that we will know that we have eternal life. He's writing so that we'll have confidence before Christ. But he reminds that in the midst of this confidence, we must remember that there is a a sin, there's a life of sin that leads to eternal condemnation. There is a just punishment coming for those who don't repent of their sins and turn to Christ. Now, I will tell you that some read these verses and they don't believe that John is pointing to to an eternal condemnation, but a sin that leads to a physical death, but that's not the conclusion that I came to. I think the contrast is clear here, that John is talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. So let's read our text, First John, uh, John 5, verses 13 through 17, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you please stand with me as we give honor to and give attention to the reading of scripture? This is God's word. It's holy, inerrant, and inspired, and as we read God's word, it is as our very God is speaking to us. And this is what Holy Scripture says. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request which we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There's a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin And there is a sin not leading to death. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. May he bless its reading and may he be glorified through his word in his people today. You may be seated. Now join me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are great. You're glorious. You're exalted in the heavens. The king above all kings and the Lord who is above all lords. How rich a salvation we have in Christ. How great a grace you pour out upon us through the beloved. How great and how powerful is the working of your Holy Spirit and those whom you have called and set apart to be your own people, people for your possession and for your glory. Lord, as we consider your word, as we consider its truth, as we consider its exhortations, I pray that we would 
have hearts that are eagerly ready to respond to the truth. May our eyes rightly see. May our ears rightly hear. And may our lives be transformed. Lord, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are in great need of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. For we are weak, we are fleshly, we battle against sin and temptation in ways that those who walk with Christ should never battle. But yet, Lord, we know that in your grace, your kindness and your mercy, you will take your word, you will plant it in our hearts, you will cause it to bear fruit, and by the working of your Holy Spirit, you will conform us to the image of Christ. Would you, Lord, sanctify us in the truth, your word is truth. Would you help us through whatever distractions, whatever spiritual warfare that Satan may wage, would you help us to be attentive to your word? And Lord, would you cause it to bear fruit? Make us like Christ. Pray this for your glory, and in Christ's name, amen. Now we must remember, we're, we're really coming to the conclusion of John's epistle here, and we must remember where we have been and what he has stated throughout this letter. And really, I think we can summarize in, in three ways, three points of exhortation. We are to walk in genuine faith, faithful obedience, and obedient love. John has tested us time and time again through these ideas. Do you walk in genuine faith? Do you walk in faithful obedience? And do you faithfully, obediently love the brethren? John's purpose in these tests, dear friend, is so that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you have assurance of your salvation. In this day, there were those who were trying to sneak into the church to bring heresies within the church. Specifically, there was the Gnostics who tried to deny that Jesus was the God-man. And that's where the test of genuine faith comes in. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the one true saving Son of God? As has remained throughout the centuries, there's this battle that we who are in and of the faith must walk in practical holiness. There are those from outside the faith who would say, no, we don't need to walk in faithful obedience. And thus, John's test of faithful obedience. We must purify ourselves as we hope in Christ. And keeping the commands of the Lord is not a burden to our souls. And if that's not enough of a struggle... If that's not enough of a battle, John gives us this third look. There are those who genuinely believe in the truth. They know the truth. 
They hold to a form of obedience, and yet they fail the third test, the test of brotherly love. You must love your fellow saints as an outworking of your love for the Lord, and you love the Lord and you love his people by walking in obedience. And so with that in mind, John has moved to a summary in chapter 5, and he has written of those who overcome in Christ. Those who overcome the world because they have faith in the genuine Christ who is testified of again and again and again in the pages of Holy Scripture. And now, in a summary, John writes of the two potential ends for every soul. Saving faith or deadly condemning sin. Either you have faith in Christ or you will face his wrath for all eternity. You could describe the theme of these verses as a great encouragement and a sober warning. Those who overcome sin through Christ and those who are overcome by their sin. Those are the two categories. That is what we consider. Those who overcome through Christ are the ones who have saving faith. And those who are overcome by sin continue in deadly, eternally condemning sin. And again, this is the great balance that we must strike in the Christian life. The Lord desires for us to have assurance. He desires for us to know that we are in Christ. But he doesn't want you to have a false assurance. He wants you to hold that assurance with a sober understanding of the complete opposite flip side that there is a sin that leads to eternal death. Just as a, as a little hint and looking ahead, that sin is unbelief. It's rejecting Christ. We shouldn't always question our faith, but we need to realize the seriousness of deception and deceiving ourselves and being unwilling to hear correction and exhortation. We talk about deceiving ourselves and our salvation I'm talking about self-willing deception. When you're unwilling to be corrected, when you're unwilling to repent, when you're unwilling to rightly address the sin in your life, not that you walk in Christ, that you repent of your sins, and, oh goodness, did I forget to repent of this one sin, but my life gives evidence of being a repenter. That's not being deceived. That's called walking and warring against the flesh. Dear friend, the Lord wants you to be assured of your salvation. Take, take account of your life, repent of your sin, and follow Christ. Pick up your cross daily and follow Him. I want to give you just a couple of principles, a couple of ideas to keep in mind as we work through this text. They'll kind of be guardrails for us to Consider, and the first is that Christ, as the object of our faith, is what and is who gives us assurance. You have assurance of faith because you have a great Savior. You have assurance of salvation because Christ is in the heavens, making intercession on your behalf, proclaiming his blood as the reason that you're forgiven. It's not because you have a strong faith that remains. He gives you that faith, and he makes that faith remain. 
additionally, we need to see and we need to understand that we are going to still battle sin. So what John writes, all unrighteousness is sin, and there's a sin not leading to death. Dear friends, that means that there's a sin. There are sins that you will battle with until the blessed day that the Lord calls you home. Both of these things, the primacy of Christ and the promised reminder that you will still sin, dear friend, that should point you, that should point your gaze to one place, and that is the cross. If you would have assurance of your salvation, you would lift your eyes from the present world around you. You would look to Calvary's cross and you would have hope. You will have lasting faith because you realize that you serve a Savior who conquered sin. And he conquered death. He conquered the grave. And he ever lives and pleads on your behalf. So let me give you a thesis statement this passage. I've learned a few years ago about this idea of a thesis statement in every passage, in every sermon, and I've latched onto it because I think it helps us, it it helps keeps us zoned in on what we are studying, to not go chase every rabbit trail that we might follow. This passage, we need to consider that faith in Christ leads to assurance of eternal life and communion with God. Faith in Christ leads to your assurance of salvation and to communion of God. And on the flip side of that, there is a sin leading to death, rejecting Christ, and it leads to eternal condemnation. Faith leads to assurance and communion and remaining remaining dead in your sin and rejecting Christ leads but to eternal hell. So all we consider this morning needs to be in light of this main idea. Verse 13, let's look at our first heading. Verse 13, blessed assurance. The blessed assurance that we have in Christ. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Think about the old hymn, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, Purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. That's John's purpose. That's his goal. That's his theme. That we would know our blessed assurance in Christ. So hold on to those words. Jesus is mine. I want to take you back to John's gospel. Because John makes a statement at the end of his gospel that will enlighten the way that we interpret and understand what he says in the epistle. John 20, verse 31, this is at the end of his gospel, and he's talked about how great and how many are the miracles of Christ. And in John 20, verse 31, he says these, all of these miracles have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him you may have life in his name. Do you see the subtle difference there? It's subtle because you'd almost read these and think, oh, John's saying the exact same thing. 
but there's a very subtle but important difference. The gospel account was written so that unbelievers might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. So that they would know that the the proclamation of Jesus is true. John says, I'm a first-hand account witness. And I'm writing these so that you will know that all of these proclamations of Jesus are true. The purpose was to share, relate, and proclaim the gospel. Because without the proclamation of gospel, there is no eternal life. Without the proclamation of Christ, there is no hope of salvation. That's what Paul said in Romans 10, verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him if they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? John and his gospel set out to make Christ known. To proclaim the life, the perfect life. You remember John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He set out to show Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that you may believe. And that believing you may have eternal life in his name. And so to be clear, because I'm about to give kind of a flip side of that coin, to be clear, a primary duty of the church A primary duty, not the primary duty, but a primary duty of the church is that we are proclaimers of the gospel, that we are preachers of the gospel, and that we are equippers for those who will go out and be preachers of the gospel. And we send people out to preach the gospel, to to go and preach the gospel where the gospel has never been heard, to go out and plant healthy churches in, in towns and cities and places where there is no gospel proclaiming witness of Christ. This is absolutely a primary duty of the local church. Seminaries are great and they are helpful in that endeavor. But the work belongs to the church. Now come back to 1 John 5 and think about what John says here. Think specifically about what he says here. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. These things I've written, what? To you who believe. Not so that you will believe, but to those who do believe. It's a different audience. has a different purpose. The so that in the gospel was so that you would hear and believe. The so that in the epistle is so that you will have assurance and confidence and hope because that's what causes endurance. The fact that you know that nothing can take your salvation away is why you have hope in Christ and why you pursue godliness. Now to be careful and be very clear, friends, we never, never, never outgrow our need to hear gospel okay so let's take that and put it in a box and keep it right here in the forefront of our minds we as followers of christ never outgrow our need to hear the gospel we need to consider and be reminded of and to remember christ's life and his death 
and his resurrection and his ascension and his ongoing intercession. That always needs to be before you because, beloved, when you consider the cross, your sin becomes so heinous. And you want to run so far from that sin. All of these so-that's that come in John's epistle are meaningless if it's not because you continually go to the cross and are being built up in love for your Savior. Once the soul comes to Christ, once the Lord has brought a soul to Christ, do you understand that there is additional need? There comes from the Lord additional instruction. These things are written for a purpose to the saints. These things, that's what John begins with in verse 13. These things I've written. He's tying in everything that he's written about in this epistle. He's saying, I've written these things for purpose. We, we talked in the introduction about what these things are. Genuine faith, faithful obedience, and obedient love. When, when, when John separated true and condemning faith, those who believe the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of the world, that was written, John says, for a purpose. When John separates out the saints from the world, when he says, do not love the world nor the things of the world, don't be conformed to the world, don't be driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, but be holy, be pure, just as he is pure. John wrote that for a purpose. When John spent a large portion of this letter explaining and encouraging the importance of brotherly love, dear friend, let me tell you, that was for a purpose. Before we move on to that purpose, let's make the careful distinction that we apply these basics of the Christian life, and Mike kind of touched on this earlier in Bible study. We apply these basics of Christian living to the saved. You don't go call a lost person to walk in brotherly love because they may love and love and love but it's not a love that's wrought out of a love for God and you will send them lovingly on a path to hell you don't go call a lost person to walk in faithful obedience to God's word because all you do then is create a legalist a rule follower one who will go to hell and on the final judgment day, they may be those who cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out many demons in your name? And because you only pointed them to obedience and not to Christ and faith and repentance, Jesus will say, depart from me because I never knew you. We call the lost to repentance. We call the saved to obedience. Lost need to hear the message of repentance. And the saved, again, we don't graduate from that repentance, but we need to understand that we repent unto something. We repent unto obedience, unto a dedicated, holy life. I told you all these things, John said, is for a purpose. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that for the express purpose that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Now, friends, the commands of God are given for two great purposes. The primary and the chief of which is not what John writes here. It doesn't mean what John writes here is not right. It just means that he didn't tell you the first and primary purpose, and that is God's glory. So if we take these things and try to make them all about us, if all of these commands are only so that we have assurance, dear friend, you've got it out of order, you've got it out of whack, and you're missing the mark. These things must begin in pressing us to live for God's glory. But the other outworking of a faithful, obedient life is this blessed assurance. The Lord does not want you, his saint, to walk through life in constant fear. He doesn't want you always looking over your shoulder, wondering if you've done enough, wondering if your faith will remain, wondering if you're still or really in Christ. No, he wants you to have confidence. He wants you to have hope. He wants you to rest in Christ, to rejoice in Christ and to allow that rest and allow that rejoicing then to spring up in you and overflow with a holy lifestyle. How does the Lord build this hope in us? One such way, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, is through tribulation, through trial. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul says there, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The hope that you have flows out of the blessed assurance of your salvation. And that hope causes you to run with endurance. Dear friend, latch on to that. If, if you walk away with, with nothing else today, grab hold of that that the assurance of your salvation causes you to run with endurance. So whether it's trial or triumph, every circumstance, every situation, dear friend, your goal in every circumstance and every situation should be that God is glorified, that your character is proven, and that that then yields hope and produces endurance. Whether the valley or the mountaintop. Your goal is a God-glorifying, proven character that presses you on to the finish line. This assurance does not only come from knowing these things. This assurance comes when these things transform our lives. Your friend, you know that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Then, knowing that he's the only begotten Son of God, you look to his cross. And you realize that, that his, your sin was laid upon his shoulders there. And you realize that it was your sin that crushed him. That the Father was pleased to crush the Son because your sin had to be paid for. And then that lie of Satan that made your sin sweet just for that moment lie of Satan is just thrown out of your mind because you've looked to the cross and you know that nothing can be sweet that ends up so bitter. 
Believing that Jesus is God's son causes you to place ultimate authority on his words and commands. And thus you faithfully obey him. And it's not a burden. It's a joy because you're doing the will of the king of kings. If you obey his commands, you hear that command that the world will know you by your love for one another. That you are to show for one, to and for one another the love that Christ showed us at the cross. So these things, they produce assurance. They give us hope. But dear friend, you only have that assurance and you only have that hope when your life is transformed by these truths. These things are written that we may know that we have eternal life. That hopeful knowledge comes when we put God's truths into practice. Pressing on, verses 14 and 15, I want to consider the idea now of effective prayer. This assurance leads to a sweet communion, a relational, personal communion with the Lord. Effective prayer, verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if We ask anything according to his will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Dear friends, would you consider again another classic hymn? We went from blessed assurance. How about the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Blessed assurance. What a friend we have in Jesus. Don't you believe that John would sing those words from the heart? He's saying that. You have confidence that anything you ask according to God's will will be heard and will be answered. Do you ever think about the peace that you forfeit? Do you ever think about the painful weights you carry and bear simply because you're too stubborn or you lack faith to carry everything to God in prayer? Dear friends, you have all the power in the universe at your fingertips. All by going to the great king in prayer and asking things that accord with his will. Are you facing trial, trouble, or temptation? As the hymn would say, our hope in Christ should call us to run to our Savior in every temptation, in every situation, in every grief. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So John begins here with an almost outlandish stand, sounding statement. This is the confidence that we have before him. Now, he, he's writing of the king of kings. So let's add that weight that he's writing of the creator of the universe. He says, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything Anything, according to his will, he hears us. Dear friends, do you know what's the key to that statement? It's not that you ask. 
It's really not even necessarily God's power, though it is through God's power that any prayer is answered. John says, if you ask anything according to his will. It's the Greek word kata, K-A-T-A. It means down from or after the manner of. If you ask anything after the manner of, in submission to God's will, in accordance with God's will, he hears and he will answer. We, we could illustrate this very simply. You might pray for a billion dollars every day, and guess what? You're probably never going to get it because that doesn't accord with God's will. You may even have good and pure motives, but it's not God's will, and so you can pray for it all you want, and it will never come. It will never happen. Or you could pray for the most hardened, evil, greedy, sin-sane sinner that you've ever seen or met or encountered. And you may pray fervently for them for years that the Lord would open their blind eyes. And that accords with his will. And that person who you think may never be able to come to Christ, you think they're just about beyond the grips of Christ, but you faithfully, fervently pray, and it accords with God's will, and the blinders come off, and new life is breathed into that dead soul, and he answers your prayer because it accords with his will. This is the truth that we must understand. God is sovereign. It means that he's the rightful ruler over all things, and he does exactly according to his will and plan and purposes. When you pray according to his will, you have every confidence that it will be done. So friends, as we think about teaching, whether it's a new convert or perhaps our children about prayer, I would encourage you to start with this idea. That is that you take anything and everything to God in prayer. And you do so with a humble and submissive heart. But you take everything to God because he will sift it out. The Lord will sort through whether or not your prayer accords with his will. And if you pray with that humility and that trust that he will only accomplish what's for his, his glory and for your good, then you can pray with faith. And that's what we need to teach those who are young or those who are new to the faith. Can't consider this without thinking about the question, what about those things seem to be God's will. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, but you don't get the affirmative answer. The Lord doesn't do what you've prayed for. How do we make sense of that? Because if you've lived long, you have experienced a time when you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and that prayer has not been answered in the way that you want. How do you make sense of it? Dear friend, my prayer and my hope would be that those, in those instances, the Lord grants you the grace to understand that his wisdom is far above yours. His ways are beyond our comprehension. In those times when you pray for something that seems like it so clearly should align with God's will, and yet you don't get the answer you want, in those times, you must rely on the things that are indisputably clear in Scripture. God is good. He's faithful. He loves you. He works 
all things to the good of those who are called according to his purposes and for his glory. His grace, dear friends, is always sufficient. When you pray and pray and pray, and when you don't get that answer that you want, dear friend, don't grow bitter. Don't take aim at the good, loving, creator God of all things. But remember what his word says, that he's good. His mercies are new every morning. We need a general understanding of statements like Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Not everything, not every purpose will be revealed to us. Romans eleven thirty four. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. And he said, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Dear friends, there are times when we just have to submit. Or we just have to accept and understand that we may not see the end of God's purposes even on this side of eternity. But when that's the path, when that's the road before you, we must submit. We must trust the Lord. Spurgeon said that the Lord hears our desires should be enough. We only should wish him to grant those desires if his infinite wisdom sees that those desires would be for our good and for his glory. Dear friend, that can be a tough, difficult pill sometimes to swallow. That it should be enough to know that God hears because he does hear. And then we need to submit and it should be enough to know that he will answer only that which is for your good and for his glory. We need to earnestly, faithfully, fervently bring our prayers before the Lord because he hears, he delights in the prayers of his people, and he desires, he wants to be able to answer your prayers as they accord with his will. Verse 15 says, And we know that if he hears us in what we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Matthew Henry writes that to know that our petitions are heard or accepted is as good to know that they are answered. Therefore, we know that we are so pitied or pardoned or counseled or sanctified or assisted and saved. We are, we are all those things so far as we are allowed to ask of God those things. That should be a great comfort to your soul. And, and that statement should, at least in a way, inform our prayers. Do you notice the things that Henry listed there? He said that we are so pardoned or counseled, filled with wisdom and sanctified and helped and assisted and saved. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't have our prayers answered sometimes is because they're far too earthly. They're far too carnal. They're not heavenly minded enough they don't have an eternal gaze and eternal perspective perhaps we need to spend more time praying for our sanctification praying for god's mercy praying for his help for his wisdom for him to rot to to bring salvation james montgomery boyce offers this helpful clarification he said, prayer is not so much getting God to pay attention to our requests, 
It's more that we are getting our requests in line with his perfect and desirable will for us. Boyce concluded, it's learning to think God's thoughts after him and to desire his desires. Think God's thoughts after him. Desire his desires. And then when you pray, dear friend, you will receive the desires of your heart because they align with what the Lord wills. Praying with utmost confidence as you walk with the Lord. Consider Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I keep and hold and regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The necessities of effective prayer are an eternal glory of God focus, a pure, humble heart, and a life that is being sanctified. If you want to pray effectively, fix your your gaze and your attention on God's glory, Ask him to purify and humble your heart and see to it by his grace and through the spirit that your life is being sanctified and your prayer life, dear friend, will take off because everything you pray that accords with his will, he hears and it will be accomplished. A pure heart evidenced by a pure repenting lifestyle will open the doors of heaven pure heart and a pure repenting lifestyle will open the doors of heaven and your access doesn't come because your heart is pure and because you are a repenter it comes because you're in Christ that's why we pray in Jesus name because it's through Christ that we have access and that we come boldly to God's throne of grace for help in our time of need I want to press forward to Verses 16 and 17, consider the third heading in this text, kind of the, the bookend to, to the great hope and assurance we have, and we we'll consider here deadly sin. So blessed assurance, effective prayer, and deadly sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there's a sin not leading to death. So again, just consider, just to kind of pack and pull all of this together, the blessed assurance, the hope that we're in Christ. There's that communion that comes when we have that hope and that blessed assurance. But that blessed assurance... And that ultimate hope must be carefully held with the knowledge that there is a sin that leads to death. We need to think clearly here. I'll take you one more time to a classic hymn, but it may be one with which you're not familiar with. It's a hymn by Isaac Watts called How Sad Our State by Nature Is. Watts wrote there, How sad our state by nature is. Our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive souls fast in his slavish chains. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, into thy hands I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness. 
my Savior, and my all. If we're going to consider deadly sin, and if we're going to think about our blessed assurance, dear friends, it needs to be couched in this idea. How sad our state is, our sin, how deep it stains, and the slavish chains of Satan that are on us. We need to understand that we're guilty, weak, helpless worms, and we cast ourselves into the Lord's hands, that He is our strength and our righteousness and our Savior and our all. And if you hold that rightly in your mind, that idea, then everything under this heading will, will make, I think, more sense. We need to think about the enslaving nature of sin. We need to think about the deep stains and the deep chains, the, the enslaving chains of sin. Dear friend, do you realize that Satan and the world that is under his instruction and his power would only want you to think of sin, would only want us to think of sin as that which does not lead to death? That's the deception of Satan and the world under his authority is that we minimize sin. That's what the, the world and the culture does for us, right? They, they want you to minimize sin and to not talk about the eternal effects of it. They don't want you to talk about a sin that leads to death because that doesn't make people feel good. Dear friend, what it does is call souls to repentance. The church, we, the church, must be a beacon of this light, of exposing the darkness and the condemning nature and effects and the power of sin. It's not going to be popular. It's not going to win you a popularity contest. It's not going to make the world go easier on you. But it submits to the truths of Scripture. So now let's just work our way through what John writes. Firstly, he talks about the one who's caught in a sin that doesn't lead to death. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Dear friend, we must commit to praying for one another when we see one another sinning. Such a simple concept. But how often is it practiced? From, from the foundation of this local church, one, one of the core guiding principles has been that we will be accountable to one another. That, that if you see me sinning, or if I see you sinning, we will go to one another. And there will be a private confrontation. There will be that brotherly accountability that is so clear in Scripture. Do you, command, do, you, do you understand, do you see that the Lord also clearly commands not just the confrontation, but the prayer? That we, we, we can't neglect the call to accountability. But dear friend, we can't also neglect the call to pray and to pray and to pray for that brother or sister. How much more patient Will you be with a fellow saint who's dealing with sin if you've prayed for them? Not just a one-off prayer, Lord, give me wisdom and help them to be receptive to my, to my coming down on them and their sin, but that you earnestly prayed for them. How much more godly wisdom and counsel will you be able to give that saint if you've prayed 
and sought the Lord's truth in a spirit of prayer, and you come to bring the scriptures to bear rather than your opinion. How much purer, more, how much more pure will your heart be in that confrontation after devoted prayer? See someone committing a sin not leading to death, dear friend, pray for them and then go to them. But let's not use that, that prayer as a crutch because sometimes it's difficult to confront a sin, isn't it? Sometimes it's difficult to go to a brother or sister because you don't know how they're going to receive it. And if you're like me, I know exactly what your flesh will then say. Well, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. Well, yeah, you need to pray about it. We need to bathe every decision and every interaction in prayer, but that doesn't give us an excuse to never go and to never confront and to never act. Because, dear friend, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised our next breath. We're not promised that relationships will continue. So pray and then act. This prayerfulness and this relational accountability is not a dichotomy. It's not that you can only do one or the other. Really, these are two pieces to the same puzzle. And that puzzle is Christ-like brotherly love. And these are really two of the corner pieces. If you've done a puzzle, you know that you start with the corner pieces. And these are two foundational corner pieces to brotherly love. That you pray for one another and that you go to one another and hold one another accountable. Then what about the rest of this verse? An important and sobering question. What is the difference between a sin that does not lead to death and the sin that does lead to death? There is a sin leading to death, John says, and I do not say that he should make a request for this. Thankfully, this comes at the end, so I can rush through it just a little bit and, and not have to give a, a full, detailed interpretation. But I think the interpretation will be clear, and we're going to try to make it clear. Think about Scripture. You could go all over both Old and New Testament, find stories of people who have literally died because of their sin. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. 1 Corinthians 11, the Corinthians abusing the Lord's table. Or even more, more opportunities, examples to see this in, in the Old Testament. Think about times like the sons of Aaron, when they came and offered strange fire to the Lord. Their sin led them to death. And there are some commentators then who take this idea and apply it to a physical death. But I just don't think that is actually the case. In this epistle, John speaks of death one other time. It's 1 John 3, 14. And there he's not referring to physical death. It's spiritual life and spiritual death. What is he talking about in the direct, immediate context here? He's not talking about a physical life. He's talking about that you know that you have eternal life. What's the opposite of eternal life? It's eternal death. So this is a sin, in my opinion, and the opinion of, of many commentators. It's a sin that leads to spiritual death. What sin leads to spiritual death? We talked about this either last week, maybe, or the week before. Kistemacher writes, it's the person who rejects Jesus as the Christ. That is the sin that leads to death, unbelief. It's really, there's only one sin that leads to condemnation. 
Every other sin you can repent of, and you can come to Christ. And really, you can even repent of unbelief. But on that last day, when you stand before the throne, the one sin that will condemn your soul to hell for all eternity is unbelief. Rejection of the Christ. So now, let's think. What does John say here? There's a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make a request for this. So now we have to ask the question, is John saying we don't pray for people who are unbelievers? Dear friend, think about that in light of Scripture, and you know that that's utterly ridiculous. That's not the point that John is making. So what point must he be making? The point that John is making is that the way that you pray for a saved person and the way that you pray for a lost person are different. There are similarities, sure, certainly. But think about that distinction we saw in John 20, verses First uh, John five thirteen, he's written so that you might believe in John 20 and so that you may know that you have eternal life in First John 5. It's different audiences, so there's different applications. The one in Christ, you're praying that the Lord brings conviction, that the Spirit then brings them to repentance and the Holy Spirit enlightens the truth. And then you're praying, I think, in, in accordance with this context, you're praying that that repentance gives them assurance. There's no good assurance that a lost person can have. That can't be what you're praying for, for a lost person. What do you pray for, then, for a lost person? It's not for corrected behavior. It's not for deepened affections, because the only affections they have are for sin and Satan and self. Saved person, you pray that the Lord would deepen their affections for him. But for a lost person, you pray that the Lord would give them a new heart. That's the difference. You're praying for a new heart versus deepened affections and realization and understanding of sin. James Montgomery Boyce, again, is helpful in a comment here. He says, whatever your interpretation of the sin leading to death, he said, we must always bear in mind that that's really the exception here. John is not highlighting the sin leading to death necessarily, but the positive command. So Boyce concludes in that the burden is laid upon us by John to pray for any believer whom we see falling into sin. That is the burden. That is the point. That is the application. That is the exhortation. That is the implication of John's statement, that you need to pray for one another. Specifically, you need to pray for one another when you fall into sin. And guess what, friends? That means that you and I need to understand the sins that each other deal with. You can't pray for somebody's sins when you don't know the sins that they struggle with. And you can't know that if we're unwilling to open up to one another. We can't deepen relationships through praying for one another and holding one another accountable if we're just going to be like clams with our, sh our shells closed and not willing to interact and open our hearts and our lives to one another. Dear friend, when's the last time that you have considered a new saint and rather than becoming aggravated with their stubbornness because new saints... They can be stubborn and hard-headed and run back into sin after sin after sin, time after time after time. 
But how often do you, rather than getting aggravated, and parents, this happens often if you have a child who knows the Lord, often rather than getting aggravated, do you stop and pray and pray and pray that the Lord would deliver their soul from that sin that keeps dragging them back in? Dear friend, that that prayer will lead you to patience, but it will lead you to, to hold them accountable. Right? We never pray just to the end of being able to voice something to the Lord and then move on. We pray so that we can be filled with wisdom and love and patience and gentleness and truth. And then we go bring God's word to bear. See, anyone committing sin, pray that they're delivered from the power and the penalty of the sin. That, that's where the prayer for the lost and the saved does come together. Because sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you don't know if that person is saved. You can pray that they'll be delivered from the penalty of sin because the Lord is outside the bounds of time, so your prayer might be for something that he's already answered in space and time. But pray that he enlightens the soul to the truth. Remember your former estate. Part of why I gave you that hymn at the start. How sad our state by nature is. Remember that you're a guilty, weak, and helpless worm, and you must cast yourself upon Christ as your Savior, your strength, and your all. Remembering that, dear friend, pray. Pray faithfully. Pray earnestly. Pray with confidence because you know that the Lord hears your prayers, and if they're according to his will, he's going to answer them. Trust the Lord to hear and to work. Sometimes, dear friend, you have to walk in the Spirit and you need to be discerning. But sometimes the answer is to pray and to trust the Lord by His Spirit to do the work. Sometimes we do just keep our mouths shut. I would argue that that's probably not as often as the number of times that we do keep our mouths shut. But sometimes that is the answer. So we need to draw to a conclusion. John bookends the passage with pictures of saving faith and deadly sin, blessed assurance, and eternal condemnation. And what comes between? The promise that if you ask anything according to his will, he hears your prayer and he grants you that request. What did Paul tell the Thessalonians? I think it's 1 Thessalonians 4. This is God's will. Your sanctification. If you want to pray fervently and pray God's will, pray for your own sanctification. Scripture tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but he desires that all come to eternal life. Pray for the salvation of souls who are lost. You'll be praying according to his will. Pray for these things and labor and strive in his grace to bring them to pass. Dear friend, don't make that only an internal statement. Pray with one another and for one another. Pray for those things with and for one another. And then strive and labor together with one another bring these things 
Dear friend, I hope and I pray that you have and that you know blessed assurance. Pray that you know the hope that comes only in Christ. And if you struggle with that assurance, if you struggle to know whether or not you're in Christ, the answer is not to clam up. The answer is not to go be so introspective that you lose sight of everything around you. The answer is to look to the cross, to see the grace of the Savior, to throw yourself upon his mercy, to understand that, yes, you are a weak, guilty, helpless worm, and then cry out, my God, my Savior, my Christ, my all. Dear friend, the blessed assurance of the Lord is a sweet grace and gift from God and we should strive to walk in it but we should also remember that there is a deadly sin and if you are harboring sin in your life and in your heart don't pursue assurance pursue repentance and let the Lord break you over your sin and then grant you assurance of salvation when you have repented and placed your hope and your faith and your trust in Christ let's pray